one to 10, 10 being the highest, what would you say your trust level is for people in your life? How easy is it for you to trust family members, friends? How easy is it for you to trust God? When I read the Gospel Today meditation, I, I thought about how much trust Jesus shows. Trust in the Father and trust in Peter. And what do I mean? Well, striking that Jesus says, Peter, no mere man has revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father has revealed this to you, who I am, the Messiah. And I would have thought that right out of the gate, Jesus would have wanted to tell Peter that himself. Hey, Peter, I'm the Messiah. Come follow me, believe in me, trust in me. But Jesus trusts the Father to reveal that to Peter and the apostles. More than that, Jesus trusts Peter with the keys. I give you the keys of the kingdom, what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's a lot of responsibility. There's a lot at stake, the salvation of souls, his whole church at stake. And Jesus entrusts that to Peter. Now Jesus did say, I will be with you till the end of the ages. He is with us today. But human beings make mistakes. Even popes, priests, sisters, parents make mistakes. So what kind of trust level do we have? Well, trust is an interesting virtue. I teach at St. Thomas in charge of the seminary. St. Thomas Aquinas is maybe the most brilliant mind ever in the Catholic Church. He actually doesn't, he speaks about trust when he speaks about faith and hope, other virtues. There's actually no Latin word for trust. It's a language, curiosity. The word trust in English is not, there's no perfect match in Latin. And so Aquinas points out two ways that we trust others as we grow in faith and as we grow in hope. We trust people for knowledge and for help. Will they give us knowledge? Will they give us help? Do you know that living a life without trust is almost utterly impossible. Utterly impossible. Every child, young person, trusts parents to put food on the table. Every architect who uses a ruler trusts that the person who marked the ruler, millimeters, centimeters, inches, did it accurately. Everyone who buys a bus ticket trusts that the bus ticket will work and the bus driver will get them to the proper destination. We trust doctors to give us the right prescription. It's an advantage to live a life of trust. It's a disadvantage not to. Imagine if the architect had to make his own ruler 
every time he measured something. Imagine if the child had to get his own food rather than from the parents. Imagine if you couldn't trust a doctor, but you had to try every medicine to see which one worked. To trust is an advantage, and so it is spiritually. To trust the church, that she will proclaim the truth, that she will feed us with the bread of life. To trust the revelation of Jesus down through 2,000 years. It's a great advantage to grow in the spiritual life. People who trust others in general are more trusting them, trustworthy themselves. Think about that for a moment. If person usually trusts others, they're projecting something of themselves there. They're typically a more trustworthy person. But the person who's always suspicious of others is more probability they're the one who lie. They're the ones who lie. Not trustworthy. Now we have to be discerning. Don't just trust everybody. We have to be discerning. But it's a characteristic of a virtuous person who is trustworthy that they often trust others. I was reading just a little, I like sports, and I was reading about Johnny Unitas. Some of the old timers here might remember Johnny Unitas. Young timers might not. But the coach, the, the, the owner of the Baltimore Colts entrusted his team to that man as a quarterback. And what happened after was striking. But Johnny Unitas was a Catholic. He went to a Catholic high school, St. Justin's in Baltimore. He was originally tailback and tight end, but the quarterback got hurt. He became the quarterback. He uh, accidentally shot his finger with a, a kind of revolver, so this particular index finger was always stiff, could never bend. He wanted to go to Notre Dame, but they already had a great quarterback. He ended up at Louisville. He was drafted in the ninth round by Pittsburgh and let go without taking a snap. <laughs> Sometime, the Baltimore owner and coach saw him and said, you know what, this scrawny little kid, he was 139 pounds as a quarterback in high school. That scrawny little kid, maybe we'll take a chance on that kid. And here's what happened the first two times in professional football. Dropped back for his first pass through an interception and went the other way for a touchdown. Next hike, he dropped for a fumble. The opposing team got it. Not a very good way to start out. But he went on to become the rookie of the year. The next year, he started setting records, threw for 2,500 yards and 24 touchdowns. Won the Super Bowl in 1971. A good Catholic, actually his faith informed his whole life, including his football. But I just suggest that the Baltimore coach took a chance a kind of a lanky guy and turned out to be something spectacular for them. And Jesus takes a chance on us. He entrusts to us children, grandchildren, jobs, careers, the ways that we will impact others. Jesus entrusts the salvation of souls to the church. That's a pretty amazing thing that Jesus would take a chance on us. 
How much do we trust in Jesus? One of my fond memories of growing up was getting the keys to my first car, 1996 Dodge Neon. I was thrilled because that car meant freedom. I am the fourth of 12 children, and home life was a bit chaotic. It was great. It was beautiful. But when I, when I got the keys to that Dodge Neon, It's like, now I can go somewhere. Now I have some freedom. My dad said, okay, you want to drive that car? You're going to need gas, insurance, and you get to pay for that. Isn't that great? But that car is what led to freedom for me. And last week, two weeks ago, I have a new car, it's not a 96 Neon. My car was parked outside and I forgot to lock the the doors. And someone broke in and they tried to steal the car. And I knew it because they left all my religious vestments on the stoop. (laughs) They didn't find any cash. My car is a little bit newer, and they couldn't go anywhere with it. And they couldn't go anywhere because they didn't have the key. They didn't have the key. They they couldn't go anywhere. So I was relieved. Now my car still smells a little bit like cigarette smoke, but that will go away in time. It was a lesson for me. One, I should keep the doors locked at times to keep the thieves away. But I want to keep the thieves away, not because I hate the thieves, I hate what they do, but because I want to go to work. I want to go to be with my family. And that's what that car, that vehicle means. And this church, this is a vehicle. It's a little bit nicer than a 96 Neon or even my new Hyundai Sonata. It's trustworthy. It's gotten people where they need to go for 2,000 years through suffering, through plagues, through wars. The church has stood the test of time. And many have tried to break in, start the car, Look at it from afar. Say, well, this is what the church is about, and this is what the church is about. There's only one way to understand the church. It's with the keys. The key of faith. And what does the key of faith unlock? Who Jesus is and who we are in the light of his face. 
Last week I had someone try to tell me that Jesus was Buddhist. Now he loves Buddhists, but he was clearly of the Jewish tradition. But how how do we know who Jesus is? Through faith, through revelation. And we see that Peter understands who Jesus is. And how does he understand who Jesus is? Through prayer, through an exercise of faith. What is what is Jesus asking? Who do you say that I am? And Peter said in reply, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is who Jesus is. That is the central mystery of faith. And all those words are important. Christ, the son of the living God, that's what we proclaim in the creed and we've been doing so for 2,000 years. And the church has upheld this mystery. The central and core of who Jesus is, is the son of God. And it's important to get that right and to come to a knowledge of that because it's through his sonship that we're saved, not the other way around. Many would say, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. Now he is, but that's not the primary identity of Jesus. He is the Son of God. And we're saved through his sonship. And Peter got it right. Because Peter prayed and entered into the prayer of Jesus. Whenever Jesus performs a great miracle or calls someone, what does he do beforehand? He prays and enters into communion with the Father. And from there he receives life in his humanity. And he's always pointing to the Father. That's, he, he constantly directs us to the Father. Because we're saved in love. And this book, Behold the Pierced One, if you want to take your faith to the next level or your theology to the next level, read this book. It it talks about today's scripture passage and what that confession of Peter means. Now, if I were to get into all of it, we'd be here a long time. And I want to come back someday. So, by the way, in the Diocese of Santa Fe, New Mexico, Because of the coronavirus, the bishop said, if you preach more than five minutes, which I'm already approaching, your faculties will be removed. Whew. It's probably a good idea, though. Anyway, Jesus is the son of the living God. Before he calls Peter and the apostles, what does he do? He prays. When he mourns the, the death of John the Baptist, what, he, what does he do? He goes and prays. When Peter, right after Peter makes this confession, but then says, God forbid you'd have to suffer, he goes and prays and reveals himself again in the transfiguration. And what are the words of the Father? There's only three words that he says to Jesus in all of Scripture, and two of them are the same thing. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. I have glorified you and you'll be glorified again. 
It's the central mystery. Jesus is the Son of God. And he, what does Jesus do? He invites us into that dynamic of love. And in this book it says, one of the Satans says, love is a faculty of seeing. Love is a faculty of seeing. When we love and are caught up in love and faith, we then begin to see Jesus and who he really is. Now you're probably saying, okay, this is great, this is great, so how do I pray? How do I pray? Well, we'll just continue on here. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father, my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And what is the key? Faith. There are seven keys of faith. They're called the sacraments. We want to encounter Jesus. We want to see Jesus, the sacraments. One of the most beautiful privileges of being a priest is seeing people encounter Jesus through the sacraments. When I'm at the hospital, seeing a little baby hanging on to life and saying those words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and seeing that child being embraced in the love of God. And that encounter with Jesus, with that child, with the mother and father, is prayer. Or when someone has been away from the church, when they've stumbled in sin and went into darkness and they come back to the church, they come back to the sacrament. Prayer. The encounter between Jesus and his beloved. That happens through faith. The Eucharist. It's been such a privilege, you know, being at the hospital seeing people, they request communion, and I go and bring them communion. They say, Father, I haven't received communion in so long, and seeing so many people well up, tears well up within them because there's an encounter with Jesus. It's faith. It's prayer. Confirmation. Seeing someone make, make a choice to follow Jesus and to witness to his love. Sometimes I get to see that right at the end of one's life. And of course, for me, the most, uh, the sacrament I dispense most, the anointing of the sick. The anoint, I, I, would, I, have story, I could write a book. I probably will someday. But seeing people encounter Jesus through the anointing. I had a guy suffering from corona. Now, he was an extreme case. 99% of the people get well. And they, the doctor said, okay, we don't know if he's going to make it. And the daughter's like, I have faith that my dad's going to make it. So they invited me in to anoint. I anointed him a week later. They said, he's not going to make it. The daughter said, I still have faith. And then I visited him a month later. He said, Father, good to see you. I've been waiting to see you. What took you so long? The man had come out of it. And then he said he had a vision of heaven. 
and saw God and saw all this beauty. And then God gave him a choice. you want to come here or go back and be with your family who's surrounded and at table? And he chose to come back with his family. The power of sacraments. Weddings. Matrimony. A couple got married a week ago, two weeks ago. And to see them exchange their vows, committing to one another. Love was exchanged. Faith. They were seeing Christ in the other person. The sacraments. Of course, holy orders. Seeing a priest lay down his life for his sheep because Jesus did the same for the priest and for each one of us. That's the key. You want to see Jesus? Have faith. You want to see Jesus? Exercise that faith by participating in the sacraments. And that's the key to the ignition, to the church. That's what keeps it going throughout the ages. And the way in is through baptism. We should invite people in, not beat them with the key. Say, here, here's how you unlock the door. Here is how you start the engine. And you can come along for the ride. It's glorious. So my brothers and sisters, We give thanks today for the church. We give thanks for our faith in Christ. We thank God that he revealed himself to us and gave us the sacraments so we could participate in the divine life of love.